And good morning, everybody. This is Giovanni McIver coming to you on October 27th, 2023. It's another edition of the By Job Show. Now, despite the fact that this conflict between the basically Israeli conservative parts of the Israeli government and Hamas is going on, um, and all the atrocities that have already occurred and the ones that are about to occur. Um, I'm going to let that sit for a while, see what develops. But uh, for today, I'm going to get back to what I promised you from earlier shows, which was a um, an examination of a new movie that's come out called Uncharitable. And Uncharitable is directed by someone from the Gyllenhaal family, um, the father, Stephen Gyllenhaal, um, who is the father of um, Jake and Maggie, who we all know are big uh, stars in Hollywood, are, um, I think, pretty good actors. Um, but it also gets into the, the recent controversy about Nepo babies, or just the general subject of nepotism, which is something that I like to talk about too. And uh, some of these issues are related. Um, so I'm going to talk about the nonprofit profit or not for profit sector, and a little bit about nepotism. Because the uh, presumption in America is that we live in a meritocracy, and that uh, decisions are made based on the merits what's going on and I think it's a pretty good uh, it's a pretty good way to look at things um, of course there are people who believe that the whole idea of meritocracy is a flawed idea and I agree because of course <laughs> in order to have a meritocracy the playing field has to be even and of course we know that the playing field is not even close to being even so therefore when you say someone has earned something through their merit um, oftentimes it doesn't take into account the great inequities um, between different types of people in society. So I agree with that. But let's say we live in an ideal world where there actually, where meritocracy, if we had a society where there was some, you know, equal access to resources, which right now is probably the worst it's ever been since the time of the robber barons, um, it's kind of absurd to think about this, but let, let's just say for, for, for the sake of argument that uh, meritocracy is a good idea in terms of the ideal that we would like it to be, right? Then I think it's a good idea. Well, rarely do things get done uh, based on meritocracy, and uh, more often than not, things get done by, by associations, you know, and certain networking that happens. And now networking is always considered a positive thing in a way, right? Yeah. That's how you get places. You know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. And that's often the case. Very often the case. Probably more often the case than not the case. Um, I've seen entire staffs from one, let's say, television show migrate to another television show you know, and there's no meritocracy at all going on there, other than the fact that people need jobs, know people who know people, 
who have open positions and therefore they get the job. Now, in, in a private sector, that's, that's really, um, in some ways, up to, the, up to the people who run that particular group, usually a corporation of some sort. And you are, you know, actually allowed to do things like that. Um, it's discouraged, right? But um, it happens all the time. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's right, and I don't think it's fair. So, kind of getting off on a different topic, but I'm going to circle back to that um, in a moment. But uh, the fact that uh, Stephen Gyllenhaal directed this film, and he has two children, not just one, but two children who have made a successful career um, in Hollywood, um, it begs the question, you know, what what was involved there? Um, but now he's teamed up with this guy named Dan Pallotta to make a film called Uncharitable. Now, when you hear the word uncharitable, you think, oh, that sounds negative. And what they mean by it is that uh, they feel like charities are, you know, somehow being wrongfully accused of all sorts of things and that, you know, these things don't really apply, etc., etc. So let's get to this article here. Um, it's in the AP news feed. It might not still be there, but I bookmarked it to get back to it. And it says, the, the, the title of the article is, Can the new film Uncharitable Change People's Minds About Overhead at Nonprofits? Okay, so nonprofit, everybody knows what that means, nonprofit. It's an organization that is attempting to do something but is not making a profit off it by doing such a thing. Now, you have to define what profit means, what, what profit is, right? Um, profit many times is whatever what, what's ever left over, you know, if you sell a product or whatever, um, you know, there are expenses to make the product, advertise it, etc., etc. But after all is said and done, when someone buys it, you part of that, you know, is 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 profit, right? That you know, hopefully, if you're running successful business, wow, I couldn't get that word out. Anyway, um, there's nothing wrong with a profit, but um, when you're doing charitable work. Um, the, the, the point is not to make money off this. The, more, the point is to kind of make break even more or less. Um, and in my view, what has happened with nonprofits, because they're trying to fill the space that government has ceded, because, you know, there's this pledge out there that nobody can raise taxes. If you do raise taxes, you're going to be voted out of office. And, you know, it's just impossible to fund anything through the government. And the thousand points of light, which I discussed here, which I think is a conservative scheme to, you know, uh, basically wipe out any kind of welfare program or social safety net, which I think it pretty much has been successful at doing. But the prob the reason that we have so many pro nonprofits, right, is that it, it, they do fill a gap, right? But should they fill a gap? Because honestly, a nonprofit is headed by a very small group of people, Right, who are making decisions that affect a very large number of people. Normally, the government is in the business of doing that. Right, 
But here you have like, it's kind of a little reminiscent of an oligarchy, right? You have a very few people making decisions for a whole bunch of people in the public. And now, you know, people were to criticize me and would say, well, what do you want them to do? Not, not do these nonprofits and have people suffer as a, a result? No. I just think we have to get back to a, 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 a different system or a better system to handle these things. And oftentimes when people say, you know, well, nonprofits are filling a void. Yes, they are. But you know what? Um, it's much easier to just avoid the whole nonprofit thing. You know, if you want to give $100 to the United Way, I don't know what their, you know, the percentage, all of these, now they have these people who go in and are able to analyze what's going on to tell you how much of your $100 is actually going to the end recipient, right? Because what a lot of nonprofits are doing now and which, you know, a lot of government agencies actually do is, right, they fill their ranks with kind of a lot of unnecessary positions, middle management type things, and they become these big bureaucracies where the bureaucracy itself and having the jobs and earning money, right, and supporting all those people within the, you know, entity is really the point of the entity. It loses its, you know, its, its focus, sometimes I think consciously, and but most of the time, you know, subconsciously, they just they get big, and then they forget about what their what their original uh, mandate was, and they become a thing unto themselves. And this is what I object to, because you wouldn't call that a profit, right? That's more in the part of what they call overhead, right? But overhead can very rapidly and very easily and very, you can convince people, um, especially people who aren't watching too closely, that uh, overhead, in effect, should be a source of making profits, right? So there used to be a rule, and I've brought this up in previous podcasts, is that nobody in the United States makes more than the president makes. You know, president makes $400,000 a year. He has the toughest job in the world, presumably. Um, I guess that would be arguable too, but let's just say that's the standard. Well, should any CEO of these nonprofits make over $400,000 a year? No, I don't think so. That doesn't make much sense. It doesn't make much sense at all. But yet, it's quite common for CEOs to make easily over a million dollars, if not more, um, in the multi-million dollar category. And the way that they usually justify this is they say, we need to have somebody who's a big name, you know, who can really um, get eyeballs on the institution. And in order to attract those people, because those people are in, in great uh, demand, and because they can potentially uh, get very high salaries in, in the nonprofit sector, usually, um, we have to be, be able to compete, right, to, to get those people, to lure them over as a recruiting tool, right? So we have to pay them an enormous amount of money. Well, I mean, if you look at what they actually do, they probably do less than most people, right? Um, they may have done a lot to get there, but by the time you get into those positions, it's a pretty cushy job. Um, you're not really 
producing anything. Um, you're just, you know, by fiat kind of telling people what to do and everybody else does the work. Um, now, you can say, well, you need a certain kind of person, you know, maybe an innovator, someone with proven results, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You probably do need that. Um, but um, I don't see why you have to pay them such a, a, an extraordinary amount of money to do the job that they do. If, if someone said to me, hey, we want you to be at the helm of this organization, and uh, I guess most of these people are already wealthy people. Most of these people really um, probably can make a living by doing what they have always done before that um, particular uh, entry into the nonprofit world. Um, you know, do what Donald Trump did. Donald Trump can take a dollar for being president. This guy who actually has no money. Of course, I can't stand Donald Trump, but even he was uh, willing to say, hey, I'm willing to be president and I'm not going to take a dime. Right? Well, you could say, well, he took a lot because, you know, let's not get into Donald Trump. He's a bad example. But you would think that people would, I know in my case, I would say, no, thank you. I don't need the money. I've done this in other contexts. Um, I don't need the money. I'm doing this because I want to do it. And uh, I, I, make, I make my money on my own. Thank you. And therefore, you keep your, your nose clean. But anyway, here we go. Uh, this is an article that says, All Hands and Hearts makes a promise in big letters on the front page of its website. 95 cents of every dollar spent on our programs. Well, that's, pre that's, a, pretty good, that's a pretty good rate. Because most uh, nonprofits aren't even close to that. Um, it also depends what you mean by that, too. Right? The Massachusetts-based disaster relief nonprofit, like so many charitable organizations have for decades, feels the pressure to operate as leanly as possible. Well, they should feel the pressure from inside. You don't need any pressure from the outside to operate as leanly. Of course you should be working as leanly as possible. Izzy Smith, Chief Information Officer for All Hands and Hearts, which mobilizes volunteers to respond to national, natural disasters, called it an enduring challenge for nonprofits, quote-unquote, to explain to donors and the public about the need to invest in operations and shared services. Okay, I don't think anybody's going to complain about investing in operate. I mean, you do need to have an operation budget. Um, shared services, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but, you know, it's probably something... I don't know. I'm not even going to comment on that. But anyway, financial instability as a nonprofit actually reduces our effectiveness and efficiency. Okay, well, that's true. But what is the implication of that statement? Um, financial instability, what is that, right? Um, well, if you're a nonprofit, um, I, I, I'm sure there are a lot of profits that can, that can run as a financially stable institution without having to resort to, um, let's say, bumping up against uh, questionable practices in this context. But we'll keep going, because they don't really explain that either. A new documentary, Uncharitable, from Paris Trout and Losing Isaiah director Stephen Gillenhall, wants to change that. Okay, well, um, how about you just examine it, right? It already sounds like they have a, a pre disposed point of view, and of course, you know, 
when you make a movie or a documentary or anything like that, you, you often do have kind of a, f a fixed idea of, of, of your point of view. Um, but uh, hopefully you include voices that descend from that in your, in your documentary. Um, but anyway, let's move along. Um, I, and I have to say, I haven't seen the documentary and I haven't read the book that it's based on. So maybe if I did, I'd be convinced of their point of view. But let's just keep going on the basis of this article. Uh, it tells the story of longtime advocate Dan Pilato, who pioneered the idea of fundraising through bike rides and road races, initially to raise money for AIDS and cancer research and treatment. Pilato has long argued that nonprofits are unfairly pressured to cut salaries, lower operating costs, and delay long-term investments, which all degrade organizations' ability to accomplish their missions. Well, the last part of that might be true. It might degrade your ability, but um, what's wrong with uh, pressure to cut salaries? I mean, or, you know, when you say cut salaries, I'm not sure, you know, make them reasonable. If they weren't re unreasonable to begin with, right, then you wouldn't have to cut them, I suppose. So that's a little bit of loosey-goosey with the language, right? The um, the rhetoric uh, is, is, is kind of creating a false false logical kind of situation um lower lower operating costs well what's what's wrong with lowering operating costs that's 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 what all, you know all corporations are supposed to do right um and delay long-term investments well i don't know what that means but anyway we'll see what see if that we get any clarity on there so this gentleman has a very clear you know idea of what he did and he wrote this book and it was hugely popular and it sounds like a lot of people are just saying aha see we got it all wrong. This guy's right. Well, I don't know. He's also the person who was invested in this, right? I mean, his whole um, operation, uh, he, he's deeply invested in promoting this idea that nonprofits are, you know, that um, they shouldn't have to, you know, scrounge around like, you know, beg for money kind of thing. Okay, so the other thing that I noticed about this is these uh, these things about Raising money, right, through fundraising. You have the uh, Susan Komen Foundation for breast cancer. You have, you know, all sorts of bike rides for this, that, and the next thing. And uh, you have to wonder. Now, in my case, my wife died of breast cancer in her 30s. And uh, everybody wants to talk to you when you're not metastatic yet, right? Everybody is very hopeful. And all the walks happen, and there's lots of money that goes into it, and that's really great, but it, it tends to only affect the people who are highly treatable or curable. And uh, once you go metastatic, all those people kind of disappear. Um, and uh, it's, I think, a little a dirty little secret of of these of this of this aesthetic of charitable organizations and people who are suffering from diseases. Not to, not to mention that if you suffer from a disease that not a lot of people get, you might as well just forget it because nobody's going to put money into it. So why is that, right? We, we have to have a system where, you know, those people are taken care of too. And just the fact that you can't make money off it shouldn't preclude research in that area. And that's why we have a government that can allocate funds, right, um, to that kind of thing. But a nonprofit's not going to work very well for somebody who has a a, a disease that is is rare, 
right? Because nobody's probably even heard of it, number one. But secondly, they're not going to invest a lot of money because there, there actually isn't a lot of research going on. But in my, in my case, um, I feel like you, you give money directly. You, you don't even need prof- nonprofits, right? And then you will be certain that the money that you give is going almost 100%, you know, through GoFundMe or whatever. And so a lot of these nonprofits are actually not even necessary. I know that when my wife was suffering from cancer and I was supporting her, we got a lot of, a lot of support. But it was almost 100% direct support where people would literally reach into their wallets and purses and pocketbooks and take out the money and send it over to us. And, and I've done the same. Um, it was a profoundly moving experience. Not to mention that my, my daughter has a college fund that was built by uh, my wife's um, colleagues at her place of employ. And, uh, you know, pretty sizable sum, um, which was amazing, you know. And nobody asked for it, nobody pleaded for it, nobody... It just happened out of the kindness of people's hearts. So when I see anything, even if I'm just like one degree separation, you know, if I know somebody who's gone through some difficult times, I, I directly get involved, right? And directly give money, time, and resources. Sometimes time is actually the more important thing, right? But, um, you know, you give it directly to the people. And even if it's somebody who is in need, who is someone, is a complete stranger, but I know someone who knows them, I will still go out of my way to, you know, I mean, there's some some limitation to it, obviously, because you only have so much money and so much time and so much effort to to help. And and, and in some ways, that might be a good argument for a nonprofit that you have, you know, a staff of people who are disconnected from the source of funding and you know, can act as actors in a, in a, in a more free way that aren't um, bound by certain conditions. But anyway, to me, that's the way to go. 100% of it is going to be used. Now you could say, well, there's fraud in that. You know, people can put up all sorts of things and say, you know, my wife has cancer and they don't. And well, um, I have a feeling that the fraud that goes on in that space um, pales quite in comparison to the fraud that, um, when I say fraud, I mean it in a very general way, meaning that they use the monies that come into them in order to give people big salaries, keep the place running, people have jobs, people get to hang out with celebrities, people, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that people do these things that are, that have nothing to do with the primary mission. But anyway, let's get back to this. Um, I think that uh, that's my little spiel on the, the uh, fundraising thing. Um, Pilata agrees that some philanthropic leaders, including Darren Walker, CEO of the Ford Foundation, who speaks in the film, have increased the funding they allocate for general operations. But he hopes the film will reach a broader audience of smaller donors or those who are not yet convinced. Okay, I don't know. Ford Foundation built on the uh, internal combustion engine. Ford has done a lot of damage to this world. Um, the Ford Foundation is kind of a counter counteract to that. Um, 
I don't need to know really what their motives are. They, they, they do give away a lot of money. But it's really kind of in the control of very few people again. And it's very targeted towards the things that they, they are in philosophical agreement with, right? There are a lot of charities out there that, that need funding. And most people fund according to their, their preferences, right? So government isn't supposed to do that. You're supposed to fund this, that, and the next thing, even if they're on the opposite side of the political spectrum, right? Everybody gets a piece of the pie. Anyway, um, I hope that it becomes the equivalent of an inconvenient truth to the conversation about climate change, Pilata said, that it puts it on the map in a big way so that it begins become civilly incorrect to judge charities on superficial, knee-jerk, reactive measures. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, that kind of language makes me very suspicious because you're, you know, I mean, it sounds very defensive, right? When someone is attacking you, and I think rightly so, based on actual evidence, you know, statistical evidence of people's business practices and accounting and everything, right? That's one thing. But he's just, I mean, not only is he aligning himself with this climate change thing, which, I mean, of course, people have different views on climate change, but if you don't believe in climate change by this point, you're, you've got to be, you know, something is, is amiss in your brain. But uh, The Inconvenient Truth is a very successful movie because, you know, and Al Gore, give him some props for that, um, you know, that that did shine a spotlight on it. And I think it did have a an outsized effect, you know, a little movie. It made some some big difference, I think. You know, everybody knows that movie and it it's really the first thing I can think of that that broke through, you know, on a popular level and um I think turned the tide in many ways. Of course Al Gore was working on this stuff way before, you know, um that, but you know, and Al Gore is, you know, I mean in my opinion for politician, he's, he's, I think he's a pretty clean, clean, clean-ish kind of guy, but, you know, he has his own political baggage that uh, is less than perfect, I would say. Um, probably even more critical than that. But um, anyway, uh, you know, he automatically puts you in his mind that I'm going to associate, you know, our movie with this other movie. Well, the jury's still out on that, my friend. Um, let's not get ahead of it. Um, so far, I haven't seen any great surge, you know, in terms of people going to see this movie and approving of its message. But anyway, um, so uh, the second part is really the disturbing part, that it puts it on the map in a big way so that it begin, begins to become civically, civically incorrect. What the hell does that mean? I mean, civically incorrect. Um, I mean, he chose these words for a reason, right? And uh, I think there's a lot of gaslighting and a lot of um, manipulation going on in this language. Um, that that's that's kind of an exaggeration. Um, you know, in the civic world, you you you're you're free to say what you want to say, and uh, you might be wrong with your opinion, or mostly wrong, or the spirit of what you say might might, might be wrong. But um, to say that someone is civically incorrect, I mean, that, that's almost like saying that you shouldn't be able to voice your, your concern. 
to judge charities. Now, judge, of course, is a very powerful word, judgment, right? People are say things like, don't be so, so judgmental. Or, you know, I wish you would be, you know, the opposite, which is, you know, I like you because you're so not non-judgmental. You, you just kind of are able to take in a lot of different viewpoints and, you know, be relatively willing to listen at least, right? So, so judge charities, right? Well, I, I think we should be evaluating charities, right? That's a, that's a more neutral way of saying it, right? On superficial knee-jerk reactive measures. Okay, what, what's so superficial about people looking into the accounting? What's so simple, superficial about asking questions? I mean, people are giving you money. First of all, it's pretty presumptuous of someone who's receiving a lot of donations from somebody to kind of uh, take a swipe at the very people who are, um, who are empowering him and his nonprofit. So to me, that's, that's creepy. That, that, that sounds very ungrateful and, and not very nice. Knee-jerk, I don't know what's knee-jerk about it. Um, reactive measures. He, he thinks because people are questioning nonprofits that some, and it goes against this thing, he's just going to call it knee-jerk. Well, there are probably some people who do have a knee-jerk reaction, but that's part of the process, right? There are people who have extreme opinions. And sometimes you, you need those extreme opinions to wake you up, Right? But, you know, he's saying this thing is all, it sounds like he's saying there's no evidence to support this, right? Okay. We'll see. His campaign is personal. Okay, well, that's a problem because it's not a personal thing, right? Though over the years, nonprofit leaders and workers, as well as research, have backed parts of his argument. Okay, well, if you have good arguments, why not? In 2002, the for-profit fundraising company started Pilata Teamworks, folded after being sued by some organizations that hired it to run fundraising events. Their complaint was that the company took too big a cut of the funds raised. Okay, so it sounds like he has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder because his, uh, he got into some legal trouble and it sounded like, uh, you know, folded. I'd like to know more about that. Did it fold because, you know, he couldn't operate or did it fold because he's like, you know, a big fuck you? You're going to sue me? I'm just going to close the place. You know, I'd like to know more about that. But they don't get into it, right? Because nobody, no, reporters don't report the news, right? I mean, they they don't investigate anything. Well, I was proven wrong with certain certain things. There are um, journalists who seem to be able to still report on things relatively um, innocently without the big corporation coming in and editing, you know, what they're going to say. But, uh, okay, so did, did they take a big cut or didn't they? I mean, I don't know. Okay, anyway, let's move on. In 2008, Pilata authored a book of the same name, Uncharitable, which he also reprised as a TED Talk that forms the backbone of the documentary. So the TED Talks have gotten completely out of hand. You know, the TED Talks used to be interesting because, you, you know, when they first started, and this often happens to organizations, you know, at first you can maintain... But you almost become a victim of your own success. And I think the TED Talk used to be, let's find someone who's smart and have them talk about whatever they want to talk about. What a great idea. But now they become, I mean, they were sponsored by this person, done in this. It's a whole, again, it's this huge bureaucracy now that has, I don't think it's a nonprofit, but maybe it is. But um, it's, uh, it's kind of become this monster. 
And honestly, I mean, there's a TED Talk, you know, in every little town and every little, and with people who are not particularly persuasive or interesting or gifted or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. Um, I, I just think they're, a lot of it is just backing up the status quo, honestly. Um, but, and if I were the person who, you know, started this whole thing, I would say, my God, you know, what, what happened? Um, but this is not uncommon for, you know, an entity to just kind of have a life of its own. And, you know, once the, once the genie's out of the bottle, it's kind of hard to stick it back in. But anyway, for almost 20 years, researchers and nonprofits have warned about the negative consequence of starving nonprofits of general operating expenses, also known as overhead. Well, is that true? Are they starving? I mean, I don't know. That sounds like a pretty strong word. Um, uh, of course, I think everybody knows you have to have an operating budget. Of course. It's just if your operating budget becomes, uh, you know, bloated with all sorts of stuff that, you know, people didn't sign on for, uh, that's where we get in trouble. And of course, the big evidence of this was United Way, you know, the, the, the mother of all nonprofits, you know, got caught with its pants down, uh, really got a whipping, I don't know, maybe it was 20 years ago. And that was when the first discussion of this whole thing started. Before that, it was, people didn't even bother asking questions, right? But then people probably on the inside who knew what was going on probably spread the word. And before you know it, the United Way is like, you know, for every dollar it collects, like it gives a very small, I don't know if it's true anymore, but at that point it was a shockingly low percentage of the money would get to the end user, right? So... Anyway, um, hopefully things have progressed better for them and for other people, other entities. Um, in 2004, the Urban Institute, along with several partners, conducted a large survey of nonprofits that found investing too little in an organization's basic infrastructure diminished its effectiveness. Well, of course. I mean, if you, if you, if you don't have the basic things, yeah. Uh, Urban Institute, um, I don't know. That's one source they're talking about here. I'd like to know who they, I'm not sure who they are, what they're, but they're probably a nonprofit themselves, all right, so, I mean, I don't know, uh, probably not the person to be investigating this, this the entity being, you know, I, I don't know what's true, but anyway, um, I found investing too little in organizing, basically, blah, blah, blah. in 2009, researchers at the Bridgespan Group found that, the, that despite these results, many nonprofit leaders still plan to cut spending on overhead. Well, okay, um, let's hear from the other side of the aisle, right? Hold on a second. We're hearing from two people that are going to, two entities that are, are supporting this basic premise. Uh, who are the people on the other side of the argument? It's not, they don't mention it here, okay? So right there, I'm just kind of like, hold on. Well, you know, this article is very biased in, in the information it includes. At least, well, because it's trying, you know, if you want to be really cynical, what's the point of this article? This article is to is to promote the film, but what is it really there to do? It's to promote, you know, the welfare of the nonprofit. Well, that's great if it's everything's being done properly, but not so great if it's not. These studies pointed out that ratings agencies like GuideStar, which was acquired by Candid and Charity Navigator, contributed to this pressure by focusing on fiscal data provided by nonprofits in their tax returns. Okay. What's wrong with that? In 2013, three of the largest agencies teamed up to challenge what they called the overhead myth. 
writing an open letter to donors that was followed the next year by a letter to nonprofits. The agencies urged donors to consider the results and impact of a charity when deciding where to donate. What's wrong with that? Transparency, right? Not just the percentage of their revenue spent on administrative costs and funding, fundraising. Well, as I understand it, the, 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 some, some of the, the diagnostical uh, you know, um, quantities that they were reporting on was what I just said. For each dollar that they take in, how much actually gets to the end user, right? Um, there's a whole bunch of data that you can pull from. And uh, I don't think anybody's saying that you should judge a, a nonprofit by only on the statistic of how, how much of their revenue is spent on administrative costs and fundraising. That's not the point. You know, we're looking at that, you know, with respect to how much actually gets to the end user. You know, it's, 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 it, you have to see it in context. So most of what I know about the navigators, these charity navigators, is that they, 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 I mean, it seems to me a pretty reasonable thing to say how much money do you give them and how much of that gets to the actual recipient, right? That's, that's a very basic diagnostic. So if you feel like that's not fair, I, I think you, you have to reevaluate your point of view. Um, in September, Charity Navigator announced a major overhaul of the methodology it uses for rating nonprofits which include a significant change in the way accounts spending on fundraising and administrative costs. The intention of the changes is to help prospective donors focus on whether a nonprofit is achieving its mission, said Michael Thatcher, the organization's president and CEO. I think that's reasonable. So they took the criticism and they, they made some adjustments. Um, whether they were just uh, bowing to political pressure, you know, because the political pressure of the do-gooders is very strong. Right. And when I say do-gooders, I mean the people who are, who do, you know, who are do good things for people, but have very strong ulterior motives. No, not the naive definition of a do-gooder who just does it, you know, because out of the kindness of the heart. Right. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, I mean, again, in this article, it's like instead of pressing the notion. The original premise of this thing, right? They're trying to they're trying to support this argument that we should be more more open to nonprofits, you know, being spending money on this, that, and the next thing. Now it's kind of turning around and saying, oh, well, the people who are judging us are the problem, right? And we have to uh, attack them and criticize them. And there's nothing wrong with that because it'll make that company a better company, and. Uh, in fact, they did change their protocol. So it's kind of interesting that they're trying to throw it back in the face of the people who are criticizing, but when, when they criticize them, they actually do make the change. The nonprofits, I, I'm not sure that they do. Why do we need this movie um, to convince people? I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, Shakespearean, you know, afraid you're protesting too much, right? Um, what does the money do? Not where was the money spent, he said donors should ask. It's nice. Showing a pie chart with a percentage, it's easier. It's harder showing the actual impact that's been made. Well, I don't know. Um, I get back to that original idea. For every dollar that comes in, how much gets to the end user? The ratings agency, including Charity, Navigator, and the BBB, 
Better Business Bureau, I guess. Wise Giving Alliance do still recommend that 65 to 70% of a nonprofit's revenue should be spent on programming. Hey, what does that mean? Um, the Wise Giving Alliance said its opinion research shows that financial ratios continue to be among the top five signals of trust used by donors particularly among older and wealthier participants. Yeah, so that's another problem with the nonprofit thing, is that they're funded by very rich people, right, in general, and older people. So it, those, they're going to skew toward the interest of those people, which is to keep their wealth, right, which is kind of runs across purposes to giving out money to people who are less, less um, able to... Uh, you know, make a living, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's um, it's another reason why these things are not uh, really great. They're very they're skewed um, toward the interests of the very wealthy and the very powerful. Whereas in government, at least theoretically and in the past, there was some. Now that everybody in government is a millionaire, except I guess Bernie. But um, it used to be that we, you know, people people weren't able to make a lot of money in government. You, you don't make a lot of money through your your salary. You make a lot of money through other things that kind of seep your way, you know, from the very same people, by the way. Elizabeth Thuring, an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Dallas, pointed to donors and foundations who embrace effective altruism as another countervailing force within the nonprofit field. Who embrace effective altruism. Okay, it sounds like a rhetorical flourish. Um, what does that mean? In part by emphasizing efficiency, those donors continue to pressure nonprofits to decrease their standing costs, use a slightly different using a slightly different vocabulary. So okay, good. Sounds good. That makes sense. Effective altruism. I guess it depends what that means, right? <laughs> depends out of whose mouth that comes out of. Um, no one sets out to starve a nonprofit, but no one sets out to be inefficient, she said. So you end up being caught between these two straw men that have been painted by the factions in this argument. Well, all right, I guess, I don't know. Here's a person who's like, come on, guys, stop fighting. Let's just all get along. Um, you're both equally wrong. Well, you know, that's very equivocal of her to say. Of course, coming from an assistant professor at a university, and that's pretty much all they do is say things that are more or less equivocal so they don't get fired or, you know, disciplined in some way. Anyway, um, Searing said that since the pandemic, many donors, foundations, and nonprofit boards now see the importance of carrying over some funds from year to year to help nonprofits deal with unexpected circumstances. Similarly, more donors understand the value of granting unearmarked funds which allow nonprofits to change plans or simply to invest in their staff or improve their infrastructure or technology. Okay, well, that to me is problematic, right? Um, you should be doing that from the beginning. I mean, everybody has a rainy day fund, right? Um, what, 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 what is so different about a nonprofit, right? I mean, why, why do they have a, like a special provision as opposed to any other entity, you know, to cover I mean, it does make sense that they would have a rainy day fund, but um, that shouldn't be the driving force for just continually uh, raising funds um, and using it for that purpose. 
Um, you raise it, you keep it in your rainy day fund, and it sits there, right? Um, it almost sounds like they're excusing, saying, well, you know, once once you have your, your you know, there should be a provision where once you have that rainy day fund, you, you stop raising money with with that as the um, the reasoning behind it. But uh, I don't know. This is a very, very skewed article, like many articles are. Um, and so, you know, where the, where's the other side of the argument? And secondly, where, you know, it starts out with this film, and then you barely hear from these two guys, right? I want to hear from them. I, want to, I heard a little bit from, you know, some of what they said, but... Um, yeah, it, it, they just take it as a vehicle to bring up the subject and then forget about them. But I, I don't think there are enough voices on the other side of things. I mean, that's what this argument is about. you got to have two, two sides, you know. Um, one side is very strongly advocating for the nonprofit, and the other one is just kind of saying, well, you know, we have to keep an eye on them. They're not, they're not very strong in their criticism, let's say. So anyway, and then at the end, irony of irony, the Associated Press coverage of philanthropy and nonprofits received support through the AP's collaboration with the Conversation U.S., I guess it is, or us, I'm not sure, with funding from Lilly Endowment Incorporated. Well, you know what Lilly is. Lilly is Eli Lilly, the drug manufacturer, pharmaceutical. The AP is solely responsible for this content. Not really. I mean, you just said you weren't, more or less. For all of AP's philanthropy coverage, visit this. You know, philanthropy is a uh, interesting word. Love of people, right? Well, sometimes I think it's love of um, of being in a position to wield power and influence through money and resources. Um, you know, that should tell you a lot that they, you know, they put that disclaimer down there. But um, anyway... I don't want to get into conspiracy theory type of thinking, but um, it is kind of ironic. But that's at the end of this, the end of this uh, article. So I mean, I think you have to think about this. And uh, certainly, I am not an expert. I am not. Um, didn't dive into this in a deep way and do a lot of research. But in some ways, you don't need to because you can just hear the way that people speak. You know, as someone who deals in psychology, right, it's very telling to listen to the words that people use, right, and the way that they argue, because a lot of times it it, um, it tells you something about what they're really trying to do, right? And, uh, you know, Dan Pilata's whole life is based on this thing, you know? If he has to, you know, change his, his ways um, to accommodate what the majority of people would like to happen it doesn't sound like it's 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 sitting very well with him if i were him i would spend some time thinking about you know what what my own you know biases are you know and jake gillenhall of course is i mean he's directed a few movies um his children uh are are you know have have been even more successful than he has in the film industry, and uh, which brings me to uh, the related subject of nepotism, right? Because nepotism is, uh, you know, when you when you 
are related to somebody and you, you, you get them a job through the, just the very fact that you're related to them, right? That's the real definition of it. But there's a much broader kind of nepotism that goes on. That It's friends of friends. It's not even people who are relatives, but friends of friends who get you the job. And those kind of things that happen, you know, which are just equally, even almost more offensive in a way. Um, and people call it networking, but I, I, there, there has to be a term for this where you gain advantage uh, because you just happen to know somebody who knows somebody. You know, people get books published all the time. People make movies. People get positions in government. People get, I mean, you name it. And they, and they have no, necessarily no, no, nothing to, you know, get them access to that world that's based on merit, right? So you got to wonder. Um, the other day, uh, I was looking at watching The View, all things, and uh, there was a discussion about nepotism, and I forgot who they had, uh, they, they were talking about, I don't know if it was um, Will Smith and his kids, Jada Pinkett Smith and their kids, or some somebody um, in the news where people are like, whoa, you know, where'd that come from, where'd this, how'd this person get to where they are, oh, it's because they're, you know, their parents, you know, a lot of times they change their names, right, so you don't know that they're related necessarily, but and they'll just insist. No, I got it through. I changed my name. I, I never told anybody who my parents were, and I made it on my own. Pulled myself up by my bootstraps and everything. Well, of course, everybody knows who you are. Um, come on, you know you don't have to tell people who you are for them to know who you are, right? Duh. But anyway, um, you know. So the view was uh, instead of saying, "Hey, yeah, well, yeah, that seems a little odd that someone, someone's son or daughter would." would automatically, or let's just say easily, and this has happened so much, you know, it's not just about individual cases, because if it happened, you know, here and there, that'd be one thing, and you'd say, all right, well, it's going to happen, you know, and someone is actually going to get there because of the skill that they have, right? I mean, I think Jake Gyllenhaal and Maggie Gyllenhaal are both excellent actors, but would they've had that, there are many excellent actors out there, Right? Would they have been able to, to, to make a whole career out of it had their father not been a, a well-known, connected director? You know, same thing with Coppola and his daughter and Phil Collins and his daughter. And I mean, the list goes on and on to the point where statistically speaking, you're like, huh, wow, it really does seem, like anecdotally at least, um, that everybody who's in the business has somebody who was in the business or is still in the business. And uh, I, I don't think that's a good way to go. And I think it actually, the, the lack of diversity um, of, of pulling people from all different walks of life is, is part of the problem. So, but instead of on The View, of course, The View is uh, an ABC News product, believe it or not. Um, and it's not, it's not in the... Or is it in the entertainment division? I forgot. Um, no, tw I'm, I'm mixing up with 2020, actually. But anyway, The View, I think, is in the entertainment uh, section of the corporation. And, uh, you know, instead of questioning it and saying, hey, whatever, they, they just proceeded to say, well, you know, hey, I got my job on The View because I happen to know the janitor. I, you know, it happens all the time. <laughs> as if that's the justification for it 
They're like, well, it wasn't nepotism because I wasn't related to him, but, you know, I happen to know him, and he, and he offered, and what am I going to do, turn it down? I mean, you know, uh, you just compound the problem, right? And it's just amazing how people just admit this stuff, like over a national television, right? And, uh, you know, people don't come back and say, hey, hold on a second, I didn't know that was true. For instance, one time I was in charge of hiring somebody for a very, very low-level job, you know, very in a job that nobody really wanted, right? I mean, it, was, it wasn't like a high-profile kind of thing. And uh, I had a friend who, who uh, applied for it. And uh, I narrowed the, I, I had, you know, interviews with everybody. And I narrowed the field down to three people. And I called one person, and they declined. I called two person, they declined. And then finally, the third person was my friend. In my view, he was objectively, you know, the third most qualified person, right? And uh, called him up, and he got hired. And then they found out that I knew him, right? Because I didn't disclose. I was twenty in my 20s. I, I didn't, you know, I should have disclosed that I knew him. But I thought because I had documented it all and, you know, pretty much, you know, I didn't want to give him an advantage because... Uh, he was a friend. So I, I just treated him like any other, you know, person who was applying for the job. And uh, I got busted. And then all of a sudden, um, it was like, hey, you never disclosed, you know, and all this other thing. And I said, well, let me show you the whole process. I had it all documented and, right. And they really couldn't argue against my argument. But they did have a point. And so I, I took, you know, I said, all right, well, then, all right, that makes sense. I should, I should have done it. I, I just didn't occur to me. So, um, you know, I mean, anybody can get caught up in this stuff. It's, it's very natural to just be like, hey, I know somebody who knows somebody who knows, so, you know. Anybody who says they don't, you know, I've certainly gotten jobs because, I mean, I have literally been handpicked for a job because this executive producer knows that executive producer. And they like my work and they say, don't even bother advertising it, right? But, um, you know, again, like in a private corporation, I, I guess that's to some degree, tolerable. Um, there's, there may not, not be the same rules. But if you're getting public funding, right, then, then there should be some rules. And in the case of one of the jobs that I got, it, it was actually a, an entity that did get some, some, some funding from the, uh, basically the taxpayer. So it was, it was really kind of improper. And I looked the other way. Um, but uh, this should not be happening. Um, I think I feel like in my career, most of it has been um, through merit, through working hard, through proving myself. Um, and there is a certain aspect of networking. I don't think you can get around that. Um, but uh, I think in order to feel good about yourself, um, any institution you're working for, you, you should hope that they, they don't do a lot of it. Um, but anyway, just my take on this whole nonprofit nep nepotism thing. I think um, they do protest too much. Um, I don't think nepotism and and should be uh, tolerated. And I don't think um, nonprofits should just be able to. You know, I don't want to get equally broad brush here, but uh, certainly, I was going to say nonprofits should just be able to do whatever they want. That's obviously a, a, an exaggeration, but um, 
they should certainly be scrutinized and, and scrutinized at a level that is much higher than a private corporation would be. And so if you make a whole movie, invest all this money and time and power into writing a book and advertising and I don't know, it just feels like, uh, you, you know, you're protesting too much. Just be happy that you were able to do what you were able to do and you can still do what you want to do, but uh, that, that you, you have a system of checks and balances. You should. You know, you should be happy that there's a system of checks, checks and balances to, to keep you honest, right? To keep you, every, we all have our biases. But, um, you know, the whole nonprofit thing can be kind of questioned from the beginning because you can do direct, direct giving. That's all I do. I only do direct giving. Um, and I haven't been burned once. So uh, you guys make up your mind, but that's where I stand. So with that, I'm going to conclude this episode um, of the By Joe Show for October 27th, 2023. Um, the next uh, subject matter I think I'm going to tackle, um, unless something happens over in the Middle East, um, that's quite dramatic. I mean, it's all dramatic, but unusual of an unusual nature where I can't ignore it for the purposes of this show. Um, I'm going to um, get back to you with a, a critique of the recent Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon. And uh, so far, the movie has gotten pretty much rave reviews, four or five stars. Um, there have been some people, most notably Anthony Lane, who I think he's at the New Yorker magazine still. Um, he's a... He's a He's a critic I can still invest in because he, he really seems to have the power to be able to give his true opinion as opposed to movie criticism that is just an extension of the advertising wheel of the film industry. Now, I happen to know people who work in the film industry, and I happen to know agents and, and other people who are associated with big stars. And um, the presumption these days is that when you're out there on your press junket and, uh, you know, you don't ask difficult questions and you don't criticize the movies. And if you should do that, you are going to be blacklisted from anything going forward. So um, the power of the industry is quite strong. And so when you're reading all these movie um, reviews, um, you have to take into account the fact that... Uh, they're very skewed because all these writers are doing their job, but with the with their necks kind of under the guillotine, most of them, the vast majority of them. There are people who, like Anthony Lane has been grandfathered out of it, I guess, because he, he, he came of age when, he, when, when you were allowed to criticize films, right? But as you can tell, my opinion of Scorsese's film, Killer's of the flower moon is going to be negative, and I would say quite negative, um, for uh, quite a few reasons, and we'll get into that. But uh, and having said that, I, I'm a huge fan of Martin Scorsese. Um, you know, Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, King of Comedy, even The Irishman, um, Goodfellas. I mean, he's made some really, really great films. There's some problematic elements to it. 
being Italian-American myself, um, you know, I, I do get a little tired of the whole mob thing. But uh, Killers of the Flower Moon really went off in a, in a, in a, in a, in, a, in my opinion, in a disastrously wrong direction. I was quite disappointed. Um, and a little bit shocked, actually. Um, and I will try to explain that to you. Um, to me, it seems obvious. I will try to explain that to you on the next show. By the way, Taxi Driver and Raging Bull were, uh, Martin Scorsese is not a writer per se. Um, he's not a writer-director. He mostly focuses on the directing part of it. Um, of course, Taxi Driver was written by the great Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader is a wonderful writer, um, highly talented, highly interesting subject matter, always seems to have his pulse on things in the, in the, in the correct way, you know, in the way that uh, is sympathetic to the right people and not sympathetic to the wrong people in a sense, right? Um, that presumption, you know, can be, can be questioned, of course, because we're, we're not necessarily in the business of, you know, having the good guys come out on top and the bad guys come out on the bottom, but, um, you do want it to have some kind of relation to reality, some kind of uh, framing so that it passes the test of, you know, being able to suspend your disbelief, right? That even though it's a movie, it seems real and it, and it, and it seems grounded in the spirit of whatever's happening. But uh, I would say Killers of the Flower Moon has violated so many principles. Um, I'm, I'm a little, um, I'm not surprised because Scorsese, uh, Again, is not a writer, and therefore might have got lost in. Uh, and we could talk a little bit about the book, which I haven't read, but uh, the book is also an interesting thing. And anytime you're dealing with uh, Native Americans or Indigenous people in America, uh, you have to be especially sensitive to, um, you know, what would be considered their point of view or their sensibilities. And uh, in this movie, I think he failed miserably. Anyway, I'll get to that uh, in a couple days. But until then, that's it for Bye Joe's show, October 27th, 2023. See you in a bit.